Hey guys, John Paulamy here, Actionable Intelligence. Today is Saturday, March 4th, and this is the weekly market update. The disclaimer, anything that you hear or see on this podcast or video is not to be taken as investment advice. I'm not a financial advisor. I cannot give you personal financial advice. Please do your own research and due diligence on anything mentioned here that you may have an investment view on. It's your money, it's your responsibility. Okay, um, before I start, uh, one thing you notice I don't have the little window with my face in it. Uh, so I'm gonna leave it up to you guys. You tell me, uh, I, for some reason, when using Zoom, the little box, I put it in one spot. Then when I go back and look at the video, it's moved to another spot. Um, it jacks up the headlines on the slide. Some people were complaining about it. So I guess until I figure out how to put the little box and keep it down into the lower left or lower right uh, side of the slides, um, I guess I'll just leave it off for right now. If somebody knows how to do that, just uh, let me know in the uh, show notes or the comment section. Um, or if you just want me to get rid of it altogether, that's fine too. And I'll maybe I'll even put up a poll and people can, you know, we'll let the uh, let the people speak. Okay, let's get into this week's slides. So um, one of the things I said I would do uh, when I made these videos or when I had the actionable intelligence alert portfolios, when I sold a position, whether it was a loss or a you know, profit, but explain my thinking behind the uh, position and then why I sold it, uh, just so you can kind of get a sense of how I look at things and how I, you know, move, you know, what factors went into purchasing a security and then what ultimately do I sell it. So uh, one of the, the stock that I'm talking about is uh, Peabody Energy BTU. In the last couple of weeks, I've sold the entire position. We had two tranches of stock that I had purchased way back when. Uh, we sold one tranche for approximately, these are approximate returns, 600% return on the first tranche and 400% roughly around on the uh, second tranche. And so it kind of begs the question, why did I sell it? Well, am I still bullish on coal? Uh, do I have a negative view overall? Is my view on energy changing? No. So basically, uh, I still have the same view on energy. I still have the same view on coal. I'm bullish on both longer term. So why sell Peabody? Well, you know, when you're running a newsletter that's, you know, you're trying to help folks uh, with some suggestions or ideas around potential investments, um, it's not really typical in a couple of years to have 600 or 400% return on a stock. Um, I got introduced to the whole coal idea via Twitter. Again, you know, follow people on Twitter should be curating a, you know, bunch of people that you're following on your Twitter, smart people. And so the idea was put into my head. I looked at uh, the coal sector, some of the arguments that were being made, did some more research and uh, decided to add the um, add Peabody to the to the portfolio. Now it was considered very highly speculative. You know, the company had not too long ago it had been through two bankruptcies, um, and coal was hated. Of course, nobody wanted to invest in coal. The coal ETF had had recently gone away. These were all indicators of a contrarian, uh, a nexus of contrarian information. Uh, I knew that coal wasn't, in fact, going away. Uh, you know, we've talked about energy on this enough. And so I th thought to myself, well, you almost have a view here where if you own existing coal assets, your ability to bring new coal assets on online is going to be limited by financing, regulatory uh, blockage, the whole ESG zeitgeist that has infiltrated the West, at least in the West, in the global South and the global East, it's, you know, coal is being uh, used quite uh, uh, abundantly because uh, the primary 
situation is getting energy and electricity to populations to uh, help make them wealthier and better. So, you know, you know, you see things like, like I said, like the coal ETF was disbanded for lack of interest, um, just a lot of negative weight on it. And then you say to yourself, well, it's not going to go away. So, okay, what are some, it's a speculation. It's not really an investment, right? At that point, because the coal, coal prices really weren't, you know, where they ended up going uh, in the last year, but it was a speculation. And so you put a certain position on, you don't, you know, we correctly position size. You don't go in with a 20% of your portfolio or 10% of your portfolio. You know, you make it, you know, three to 5% of the portfolio and you watch it very closely because if it starts to go wrong, you want to be able to pull the plug on it. And so fortunately, uh, the fundamentals for coal got better over time and we were proved to be right. So if I'm still bullish on coal, and I still like coal and I'm bullish on energy uh, over this decade, especially in the emerging and frontier markets, why sell it? Well, one of the things that you will note if you look at the returns of Peabody relative to the rest of the coal sector, publicly traded coal sector, you'll see that's been lagging um, very badly. And why is that? Well, if you see the other coal stocks, most of them, if not all of them, you know, they all are enjoying pretty much the same capital return, uh, same uh, increasing cash flows because of the pricing of thermal coal and met coal. Until recently, I mean, they were extremely high. They were at cycle cycle highs, you could argue, and have recently pulled back, but they're still relatively high historically based. So most of the companies enjoyed this windfall of exceptional uh, outsized profits, which is what you want to see in a cyclical commodity sector. This is typical. You will see outsized returns. And then typically what happens is that more capital will be attracted to the sector. You would bring on new mines and then overwhelm the market with this new supply as these folks try uh, new entrants or current entrants expanded production to take advantage of the outsized profits. Um, so uh, what a lot of the companies were doing is instituting, most of them had paid down most of their debt. And so they still had all this cash coming in. What do we do with it? So a lot of companies, you know, started paying, you know, pretty decent dividends. There was a lot of share buybacks happening. And this isn't really happening at Peabody. Why? Well, they have an outstanding surety bond for reclamation of uh, reclamation bonds that has covenants inside of these bonds that don't allow them to uh, have capital returns until they, I'm just giving you the the high level version that don't allow for capital returns until certain conditions are met. So the management at Peabody is working through that supposedly, but on the recent call, they gave no guidance for when that would be done. I mean, it was very vague in my view. And so this is another reason why the stock has lagged. Um, again, you know, they had really decent earnings um, and the uh, outlook was fairly positive in my view, but that's the same that you're going to hear from a lot of the coal companies. And so it's like, okay, why, if we have these huge returns, you know, that just were coming off these extreme bottoms, you know, you basically came off a valuation that was saying that the industry was going to disappear and this company would disappear to a, a level of, you know, going out of business to, you know, we're not going to go out of business at least in the near term because we've paid all of our debt off. But then you have to say, okay, what have you done for me lately? I mean, remember these securities stocks are forward looking. They're not rear, rear, rear looking. It's like, what have you done for me lately? Or what are you going to do for me? And so you have a lot of unknowns with Peabody, for example, uh, you don't know, you still have, you know, you can do modeling, you can go on Twitter and punch in the ticker symbol, you get all kinds of modeling of cash flows. The fact that, you know, based on current pricing, you could see cash on the balance sheet equivalent to the current or close to the current market value of the company. And that's all fine, but other coal companies have are in a similar spot and yet are returning capital to shareholders. Uh, that's why they've outperformed Peabody. And so you have to ask yourself also, this is a commodity. 
okay, coal. It is a cyclical industry. Yes, it had certain advantages because, like I said, on maybe short-circuiting to a certain extent, the maybe building new coal mines, but that's mostly going to be in the West. That's not going to stop new coal mines from being built in Indonesia or China or India or all these other places because they need the coal. And so uh, if coal, you know, in Africa is full of coal. So a lot of other places will be able to expand production. So you have to say to yourself, did we hit the cyclical highs for this particular cycle in coal prices? Well, coal prices are off quite a bit recently mostly because natural gas prices have plunged and natural gas and coal have a tendency to compete, especially in thermal coal uh, for, you know, electricity production. And a lot of plants can switch between gas, natural gas and coal. You know, coal is typically burnt in modern electrical generation as a pulverized coal. So you take the coal, grind it down in a pulverizer to a fine like baby powder consistency and then that's you just need to change injectors on your burners or what they call the guns and then you can switch between you can fuel switch that's not in every boiler but in a lot of boilers so as natural gas prices plunged um relative to coal prices you're going to see that switching back so that's another factor um like i said the stock really didn't really move after the last earnings because everybody kind of the knew what kind of modeled out what we were looking at and it didn't respond and that's not positive to me you're already you're already so you're you're already having some more question marks come up are we at cyclical highs for coal pricing what's the capital return strategy for this company it's kind of cloudy and murky no one knows uh and then you ask yourself you know the the, the mission of the actionable intelligence alert newsletter now this is for the newsletter People have personal portfolios. I have my own personal portfolio and I have coal stocks in it, okay? Ones that return capital, okay? But in the portfolio, we're looking for outsized capital returns. We're looking for inflections in industries that are bombed out, countries that are bombed out, companies that are bombed out. That's no longer the case with Peabody. And so we were enjoying, like I said, super outsized returns over the last couple of years with this stock or year and a half, whatever it was, of 600 and 400%, can we expect multiples like that again going forward? Well, probably not. And so um, we're not in the position really in the portfolio to be looking for, you know, dividend paying stocks. Uh, that's really not, you know, we may add some of that over time, but we we don't know the capital return strategy of Peabody right now. So it's not, you know, it's not meeting the criteria that we need going forward, which is, do we think it can go up multiples from here? Can it double from here? Sure. Can it maybe go up two times from here? It's it's possible. Can it go up six or 10 times from here? Highly unlikely. So that's another reason. Um, <clears throat> another reason is I really don't like or have confidence in the management of Peabody. They do not communicate well. They, until the last quarter or so, I mean, the previous quarter report was a disaster. They were in the process of talking about acquiring another coal company, um, doing empire building. No one in the resource sector, in oil and gas or in coal, is interested in empire building. What we're interested in after years of underperformance and years of teetering on the verge of bankruptcy is now that these companies are enjoying super uh super profits if you will is to see the capital return to shareholders remember when you buy a company you're buying part of a business okay and so you know you're not interested in the delusions of grandeur of the management to build the biggest coal company in the world or whatever's going on in their heads what you're interested in is you're in an era period of super normal profits and you want your piece of those profits as part owner of the business. And, you know, when luckily the idea of, you know, buying another coal company kind of got shelved. And then I think that, you know, they had an investor day and there were quite a few of the investors there, people that were larger shareholders, shall we say, that kind of told the management that, that they, that's what they were interested in seeing, not necessarily them going out and buying a coal company, maybe at the top of the cycle of the current price cycle. So that got shelved, but it's just, 
they don't i mean if you listen to some other companies they're very clear on what they're what they're doing they are you know they tell you what their maintenance capital is. They tell you what they're going to do vis-a-vis -vis buybacks and dividend policy, talking about sharing that wealth with the shareholders. And if you're interested in a coal, why not shift to one of those companies if you want to stay invested in a coal company? This company basically got lucky. You know, they were walking down the street and they walked into this era of super normal profits and uh, yes, they've done well. I will give them credit that they bought back a lot of their debt cheaply. They did extinguish the debt, but everybody did that. Um, what else were you going to do with the cash if you couldn't redistribute it uh, because of the uh, covenants that you had on your surety bond? So that's my view. I just don't like the management, to be honest with you. The other thing I don't like is that uh, Elliott Capital Partners or Capital Management, they own about 20% of the stock. I think that they've been selling some stock off lately. I haven't looked at the recent uh, any 8Ks or anything, but uh, that you know, I think they want to. You know, they want to. They're up this much, two or more even, so uh, as we are, and I think they're looking to you know recycle their profits into something else. I don't, I'm not sure that they want to stick around. Just you know, have this thing, you know, pay them dividends. So. You have that potential overhang on the stock also. Um, and, you know, there's, if you're interested in coal and you think it's going to go higher from here, if you think the, you know, future's bright and there's going to be multiples on um, share appreciation, well, um, you can always, we can always come back to the stock after they clear up the issues around capital returns and then announce and actually start doing something. It's not like the thing's going to run away from you. Um, so you can recycle into something else. You can go into cash. You can buy T-bills now that pay 5%. Um, you can sit and wait. You can sit and pay to be wait. You can sit and be paid to wait. So that's my thinking. Um, again, I'm not negative longer term on coal. Uh, Peabody might be able to you know, close that valuation gap. Uh, what's likely to happen is them to move up slightly over time and some of the other stocks to move down. You know, we have to see what the longer term pricing is going to be after that period of super normal profits. You know, you have to figure out like what's natural gas going to do. Um, maybe if as we go into next winter and the, the overall gas issues that were uh, gas supply issues that were avoided this year because of weather, you know, we had it warmer than winter, warmer than normal winter. Uh, so gas prices were plunging and that, you know, had a tendency to pull down coal prices. So again, um, these are commodity stocks. Commodity stocks are cyclical. They typically enjoy periods of super normal profits. And you need to look to harvest some gains during those times. Uh, a lot, what happens is, and I've already seen it, some of the comments that I've seen, just on Twitter is people get wedded to these things because they have so much emotion invested in them and thing has moved so much. And for some people, this is, there's a guy on Twitter that, uh, I mean, he had a schlub job somewhere, I think as an analyst and he's, a, you know, he made like 20 or $30 million aggressively trading these coal stocks from the bottom. And so a lot of your, what can happen sometimes, I'm not suggesting it in his case, but I've seen it with even some other guys is you become wedded to this, you become, it becomes part of you, if you will, you become the coal guy on Twitter or whatever. And to stand up and say, you know, harvest some profits, because, you know, can we really make the case that Newcastle thermal coal is going to stay close to $500 a ton forever? Well, I wouldn't make that case. But, um, you know, like I said, you have to have um, realistic and I think historically based views on what the returns are for commodity and cyclical stocks. So that's my uh, that's my view on this. Uh, I'm interested to hear what people say in the comments. If you have any comments, that's fine. Like I said, uh, we've harvested the profits in the portfolio. It's sitting in uh, you know T bills now, uh, which you could you know and. 5%, basically high fours, 5%. And we're looking for the next potential turnaround. You know, one of the things I'm looking at right now, and this is going to shock people, 
you know, we've had one stock in the portfolio, which is a European bank, which turned itself around over the last five or six years. Um, and I'm looking at another bank that's now making, uh, fixing things, okay, a European bank. These things are completely blown out. No one wants to go near them with a 10-foot pole. And that's what I like, okay? So that's that gives you an idea of what I'm looking at, okay? That doesn't mean I'm going to go into it. I'm looking at, you know, I've got Pakistan back on my radar. That place is com a complete mess. You know, we made quite a bit of money a couple few years back uh, in the ETF when it ran. So I'm looking at things that no one else looks at and then see if there's an actual inflection there. So uh, that's what happened with Peabody. Again, uh, interested to hear what people's comments are. Uh, if you agree, disagree, where am I getting it wrong? Why Why should I have held? Uh, or, or if you think uh, some other factors that uh, I didn't uh, account for. So, um, here's the, uh, I wanted to talk about this, getting into, um, I'm holding a lot of cash personally right now. Um, I've been building up my cash reserves. I have, uh, you know, I do save a lot of money. I don't spend a lot of money. And so I've built up some cash. So what have I been doing? Well, I've been, basically, I've talked about this inside the Discord, and we talk about this internally. I, I, I think the bear market in the U.S. is not over. Um, I, I Again, I've talked about the base case of what I think is going to happen. I'm not going to revisit it. But there's no reason right now, in my view, if I think that uh, earnings are going to come in, which I believe that's going to happen as we, you know, move through the 2023, it's going to become more apparent, I think, that, that there's a slowdown and that we're heading for a recession in the U.S. or probably may be already in a recession, at least a manufacturing recession. And so in that type of environment, if earnings are going to shrink and we have tightening liquidity, why do I want to, what is the, what's the tailwind, what's the impetus to buying stock right now? There isn't one you're sailing into headwinds, you don't have the tailwinds that you had in the last couple of years. And so this is an example. So you can track this, I'll put a link to someplace that tracks this, but S&P 500 um, earnings yield, okay? So what is that? That's the trailing 12 month earnings divided by the index price yields. Uh, that's how you get the yield. What are the earnings of the entire S&P divided by the market cap of the S&P? gives you the earnings yield. And why is that important? Well, I mean, I guess I would rather see like cash flow yield, but this makes the point I want to make. So you have earnings declining, your earnings yield is 4.73%. So if you buy, theoretically, if you're buying the S&P like in an index fund, you're getting a earnings yield of 4.73%. So in those earnings, you know, can be returned to cash flow that earn, those earnings could theoretically be returned to you via dividends, buybacks, what have you. But owning stocks obviously is risky, right? Uh, you have a certain amount of risk that you really can't quantify because no one can know the future. You can assign probabilities of what we think is going to happen with earnings, but we don't know for sure because like I said, nobody can can fully uh, know the future. And so if you have a you know current or, you know, the earnings yields 4.73%, your outlook is negative going forward, at least for the next six months or a year, shall we say, six to nine months to a year. Why would you buy stocks? You have liquidity tightening, rates are still going up, the balance sheet is still being tightened, you have all these headwinds, and you have the, you have the possibility that you're going to see earnings even come in further on the S&P uh, so uh, on these stocks, on these companies, so why would you be buying businesses that have er shrinking earnings? And why would you do that when you can get, these are the current treasury yields. This is, uh, you know, your bill rates here, one, three, and six-month bills. I mean, the six-month bill, T-bills paying 5.18%, basically risk-free. I mean, I guess somebody, some wag in the comments is going to make, well, it's not, fully risk-free, the government, I mean, from a from a risk management and investing, you know, government security, U.S. government securities are considered to be 99.999%, okay? So let's just dispense with that argument. 
So if you can get in the high fours, I mean, basically on a one month bill and going out to six months, you can exceed what the current S&P earnings yield is risk-free. So why take any risk buying stocks here? That's the point. And as I've talked about, this is easy to do. You can go on Treasury Direct. You can set up an account. It takes about 15 minutes. You can link it to your bank account and you can buy these T-bills on the upcoming auctions. I think it's the minimum's $100 or $500. And you can just roll them over. You can take your cash. I mean, I have. I, that's you don't have to worry about money market funds and all this stuff. Uh, if your money market fund, what fee they're charging and all this stuff at your brokerage account, you can just buy these things directly from the treasury by linking your bank account. And they send you emails when your stuff's getting ready to roll over. Uh, it's getting ready to expire. They return the capital to you. Uh, how this works is you buy them. You buy the bills at a discount. Uh, you know, um, I think you have to buy them. In, I, I, like I said, I can't. I think the minimums are like 100 or 500. I can't remember. But anyways, um, you get it at a discount and you get paid immediately and uh, you have zero risk. So why when there's so much um, unknowns coming up with the economy, you know, how far is the Fed going to raise rates? How much is the economy going to respond negatively to that? What will it do to earnings? You don't even have to worry about that now because what you can do is just, like I said, you can get a risk-free yield that's larger than the S&P. And there are times, you know, the, the idea is, you know, I, I, I think that if earnings come, come in after the current, you know, hop that we're in, we were in this, you know, beginning part of the year, we had this move higher in the markets, which I think is an echo bubble, whatever you want to call it, uh, you know, just a response, a technical move, if you will. Uh, you know, and, and if you think the economy is going to weaken and there's going to be headwinds to earnings, then, you know, you you can make the case that uh, the st stock prices are going to decline. So why buy stocks now when you can get a risk-free return that exceeds the earnings yield and then you're taking all the, that risk? You know, then you're sitting in cash and you're primed for the, you know, eventually this too will pass and we'll be able to come in and feast on uh, what I think are going to be tremendous bargains, not only in stocks, but fixed income. You know, I still think as we move through this uh, period of higher interest rates and if earnings, in fact, do begin to decline, it's going to put tremendous stress on a large number of companies, you know, we've said before, it could be anywhere from 20 to 30% of the companies publicly traded are zombie companies. Can, you know, as their earnings contract, how are they going to service their debt? And we've had previous credit cycles, 2008 or right after and uh, the great financial crisis and after the tech bubble, where you had tremendous opportunities in fixed corporate fixed income, where you had yields to maturity, you could buy stuff, you know, at above 20% returns. And that was in fixed income. So um, why take any risk right now? That's my point. Uh, that's boring. I know that's what the main problem is. Why am I going to buy your newsletter when you're telling me to go to Treasury Direct and buy treasuries? Well, I mean, I'm not telling you to do that. What I'm saying is, is that this is what I'm doing. Um, and I think that's probably the safest course of action if you're actively managing your portfolio. There's no reason really to go out with new money and be buying things at this point, uh, especially with liquidity shrinking and uh, the potential for earnings to uh, be negatively impacted as the economy stumbles. And here's a tweet. This is a perfect example. This is uh, net purchases of Tesla by individual investors, five-day moving average. And you see what's happened since late last year and the beginning of this year. You know, I put the title of this slide, bear market isn't over until this nonsense ends. That's exactly right. It doesn't really matter what you think. I don't think Tesla's, I'm not going to have the argument. It's not a tech company. It's an automobile company. Automobile companies do not trade at the, what you know, it's not a tech company. It doesn't have any advantage anymore. Uh, there's so many companies making electric vehicles now. Uh, it's not even, you know, I'm not going to have that argument, but what it is, is here's like this tweet says, individual investors have spent a net 13.6 billion on Tesla shares in 2023, approaching the record sum of nearly 17 billion for all of last year. The aggregate retail inflows into Tesla have never been higher. So that just tells you that we're still in the bubble-icious um, 
speculative frenzy that needs to be wrung out of the market. You know, bear markets don't end until people swear off stocks. And we're nowhere near that yet, in my view. Now, maybe this is the first time in history where it doesn't happen. But, you know, this little echo boom that we've had after, you know, the the bad, the, the negative returns in 2022 is not over. And when you see this kind of nonsense, or I mean, this isn't the only stock, quite a few of these so-called former tech stocks that happened during the great financial crisis, the same thing. You know, it happened after the, the, the uh, tech bubble, you know, watch how many counter-trend rallies there were as it collapsed. And the same thing's going to happen here. And until that happens, uh, until you wring out all the excess, until you wring out all these retail investors that think at this time, that have no idea about market history, that have no idea how to value companies properly, then I don't think this is over with. And again, uh, is it short covering rally? Is it an echo bubble? Is it people thinking that, you know, misinterpreting things? I don't know, but that that's my view. This isn't how a bear market ends. Again, here's the Fed's balance sheet. You can see liquidity's tightening. Now, I don't think they're actively selling treasuries. So they're just letting, you know, the treasuries that uh, come up for a redemption that, their term is up. They just let the balance. They just let them roll off, and so that's what you're seeing. So you're seeing basically this area from basically 2020 on, where we had the bubblicious conditions, where the balance sheet basically doubled, more than doubled, was a major impetus for the uh, for what happened in financial markets, not just in the stock market, but in the bond market and in the housing market. And now that was a potential, These, this was a major tailwind, okay, uh, for those bubblicious conditions. And now that's rolling over. So how can you maintain bubblicious conditions when one of the major stools just got kicked out? Okay, that's the point. Okay, there are still some areas, though, that I am bullish on and I do have in the portfolio and in my personal portfolio, and they're performing well. One of them is I'm bullish on tankers. I'm not going to give you the names, obviously, because that's in the newsletter, and they have performed uh, very well for us in the portfolio. Most of the reason is, well, originally, there's several reasons. One of the main reasons is the supply-demand situation in the tanker market, both, both crude tankers and product tankers. Um, you have a situation where uh, you had a big boom in building of tankers back around 2004 to eight, something like this. And you can go to most of the tanker companies and they have slide decks that show all this. And since then, you, 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 you know, this is a cyclical industry also. It goes through times of super normal profits uh, guess what the managements do when they get a bunch of new money into their pocket? Of course, they go out and build more tankers um, because everybody wants to have the biggest tanker fleet. And, you know, that's what you do, right? So that's what they've done in the past. And they've, you know, that's just normal response to, but this is a heavily cyclical industry. So what happens is you overbuild tankers, you get too many tankers, and then the rates crash, and then you have you know periods where these things just break even or lose money. So we're in a situation now where that overbuilding now has worked its way off. You have record low amounts of new builds for uh, both crude tankers and clean tankers. So the supply is shrinking because these things wear out entropy. They don't last forever. And now you have a situation where after the pandemic, um, demand is now returning all over the world where we're seeing now crude demand being forecasted to be 102, 103 million barrels a day by the end of this year into next year. You have uh, the discombobulation of the global trade routes because of the sanctions placed on Russia. So, you know, when you were bringing refined products or crude from Baltic seaports in Russia to Northern Europe, it would take a couple days to get that crude or those products there uh, to, you know, wherever in northern Germany or in Rotterdam. Uh, and then now, because of the sanctions, that goes away. So those products get delivered and that crude gets delivered to other countries, but they're longer trips. And then Europe has to replace 
its crude demand and its product demand from other places like the Middle East or China or India. And so you have longer trips with the same amount of tankers or less tankers. And so rates go up. It takes longer. Uh, something that took a week now takes six weeks. And so the demand for crude and clean products is going up. The trips are longer, but the tanker fleet, you can't just flip a switch and expand it. So you're in an era now, basically, of super normal profits. Um, and now we're seeing, you know, because of certain situations re as recovery, refined product inventories are falling. So um, there's people you can follow on Twitter. I've named them before uh, that follow this stuff daily. Uh, you can go and look at a lot of the big tanker companies' recent earnings. They're tremendous across the board. Will they last forever? No. What they will eventually do is do what they normally do, which is build more tankers. Um, but right now, that's not happening. There's kind of a log jam in a lot of the shipyards in Asia because prior to tankers taking off, if you recall coming out during the pandemic and coming out of the pandemic, there was a tremendous shortage of container ships and super normal profits were being enjoyed in container ships. So guess what the container ship companies do? They ordered a bunch, a whole bunch of new container ships. So right now, all the yard capacity is taken up for the next couple of years with building new container ships. That's why you're starting to, that's why you've seen container ship rates plunge because you're having this, you know, new uh, flood of container ships. And so you have circumstances coming together to create a period maybe of another year or so of super normal profits in tankers. Now, would I recommend you go out and buy tanker companies? No, but uh, they've moved quite a bit already, but I'm just giving you an example of, you know, some of the things that I'm still doing actively in the market, because there's always going to be a bull market. There's always going to be something positive going on somewhere, even during periods of, of uh, low uh, economic growth. And so if you go and look at a lot of the tanker companies, you'll note what they're doing. They have paid down quite a bit of debt. And so what are they starting to do with their excess cash flows? Well, they're staying restrained right now on ordering new ships, uh, but they are returning cash to shareholders via buybacks and dividends. And if you look at the forward guidance for a lot of these companies, it's very positive. So um, I like this last blip here. It says, we are now heading into a seasonally slower period for product tankers with plenty of refinery maintenance. Your refineries are shutting down for turnarounds between the winter and the summer driving season as they shift and do their maintenance and prepare to start ramping up uh, gasoline uh, production. And in that regard, it is interesting to witness both lower overall inventories in key regions and product dislocations. Russian CPP barrels at sea have surged in recent weeks, which given these inventory draws are due to longer distances, not at all weak demand. So again, um, there's always something going on somewhere. And uh, I think that, you know, 2024 will be another year of good tanker profits. And what will be the key to wanting to get out of this? Well, when you start seeing the management start talking about building all these new ships, it'll be time to exit stage right because that will inevitably kill the golden goose as they oversupply the market with ships. You know, eventually this war will end. Uh, and I think that maybe not, the sanctions may not be lifted, but we'll be in a situation where, you know, the demand for these refined products and um, oil is not going to go down over time. And so trade routes will be redone. And then eventually people will have to order more ships to, for the longer distances. So that's my view on that. So again, uh, another reason to be bullish coal longer term. Uh, this was an NPR article. Again, where I cite articles, I will put links in the show notes, which you can see below so you can read the articles yourself. This was an actual NPR article. So it was infused with a little bit of uh, global warming uh, discussion. But anyway, China builds six times the number of coal plants than other countries combined. A couple of blurbs from the article, China permitted more coal power plants last year than any time in the last seven years, according to a new report issued or released this week. It's the equivalent of about two new coal plants per week. 
quote, everybody else is moving away from coal and China seems to be stepping on the gas. We saw that China has six times as much plants starting construction as the rest of the world combined. I wouldn't say that everybody else is moving away from coal. I would say the West is. Uh, well, the U.S. is. They're trying to. But we saw what happened in Germany specifically this year um, as the energy vende failed uh, and they cut themselves off from Russian gas, cheap, plentiful gas. They had to resort to burning a dirty form of coal, lignite. Uh, was actually increased. So again, it always comes back to energy security, um, supplying prop enough and uh, energy to your population so that uh, you know they can live. That the expectation is is that people want to have their lives improved, and that requires energy inputs. And uh, so that's why China is doing this. It's not uh, to wreck the environment. They really don't have a choice at this point. Uh, you also note that they have stepped up their nuclear power build out uh, to eight to 10 reactors a year. So they're doing what they can do, but they have to, you know, if you go leave the main cities that you see in China that are shown like along the coast and you go into the interior of China, still very, very poor, very, very run down, very, very unmodernized. So um, in order to modernize, in order to have a better quality of life for people, um, you need energy. And so that's why coal is being used. And that's why I'm still bullish on coal long-term. The global east and south, which is predominantly uh, poor countries that are trying to improve the lives of their people, they're going to burn more coal. They're going to require more energy. They're going to use hydrocarbons. Hydrocarbons are not going away, even probably in the lifespan of anybody listening to this particular video or podcast. So it goes on to say uh, they have, I didn't put the blurb in here, but they go on to say, well, global warming's causing the issues in China for rivers to dry up and things like that, blah, 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 blah. So they're kind of like, you know, building more coal plants and basically creating more uh, problems for themselves longer term. But anyways, the last blurb here is really what part of the problem is, is high prices for LNG due to the war in Ukraine also led at least one province to turn to coal. Yeah, because, again, the people have an expectation that when they flip the lights, you know, once somebody has been given or comes to rely on or enjoy 99% of the time, electricity availability if you take that away they get upset okay and so every regime even the ccp you know requires at least the tacit support of the population and if you cut the pot you know we saw that with the riots over the over the covid policy their lockdown policy in china okay they had to reverse uh, that wasn't the only reason but you know there is a lot of pushback in china by the population on the government the government typically does respond to that so if you want to stay in power, you got to keep people reasonably happy. So I want to talk more about China. This is an index that I think this macro bond, again, we don't want to be accused of seeking out confirming information, but I come upon these things and I find them interesting. And so this is the China Reopening Composite Index. It's a composite index built using various Alternative daily data sets, roads and port congestion, subway traffic, international flights, box office and economic activity indexes that this macro bond outfit made. And you see from the reopening, you see their composite index is basically went vertical. OK, so uh, I don't know how you want to compare it. This is during the you know lockdowns that happened in the initial pandemic. You can see, look at the history. The thing only goes back a couple of years, but it's just another anecdotal data point. You know, I did my thesis for energy uh, not really crashing this year and possibly making newer highs later or moving higher later in this year as we move through the second and into the quarter and into the later parts of 2023 is the China returning to a more normal energy demand and the fact that the underinvestment will start biting. And so uh, that has been a big uh, factor in my um, thesis. That's another reason why I'm still mostly bullish on oil and gas uh, longer or through the mid long term, while we haven't really sold off anything.
And so this is uh, kind of, you know, giving us a data point to look at that. Yes, in fact, the Chinese are consumer is reacting just like every other consumer when he's released from lockdown and going out and spending money. And you're seeing this, you know, this reopening. So again, we talked about this before. Uh, this is what we thought would happen. So we just need to see, you know, we see the airline traffic, the domestic airline traffic, it bounced, it has like a V, V, V bounce. You'll start seeing the international traffic. I mean, I follow, uh, there's a casino in, um, uh, Cambodia in Phnom Penh, I think it's called Naga World. Uh, they, prior to the pandemic, I mean, most of the, a lot, not, I don't know if it's most, but quite a bit of their traffic was Chinese gamblers being flown in. And, you know, I, these are the kind of things I look at is international travel, you know, are Chinese people starting to leave China and go to other places and return back to their normal consumption patterns they had pre pandemic. So these are the things I look at and uh to see what's going to happen and uh, you know the reports that we're getting is that you know that's in fact what's going to happen it takes time it doesn't just happen in a week or two so uh this is positive uh going forward uh here's some information that came out last week again you know i don't necessarily say that all the data that comes out of china is necessarily true and correct i don't agree and say that all the data that comes out of any government uh you know agency is necessarily 100% correct, but this is what's being reported. It says China's manufacturing PMI, that's a purchasing manager's index, increased in the month of February. The number was reported at 52.6 versus 50.1 in the previous month. Um, as you know, uh, when the consensus was 50.6, so exceeded consensus, as you know, uh, a reading above 50 on the PMI is expansionary, a reading under 50 is contractionary. And then it says China's service PMI spiked to 56.3 versus 54.4 in January and above the consensus. So both services and manufacturing PMIs are above consensus uh, in China. Um, so again, another data point that the Chinese economy continues to recover. Uh, this came from the U.S. Global Investors Weekly slide deck that comes out. Uh, Frank Holmes puts it out. I think it's called Frank Talks. You can go on their website and sign up and you get it in your email. They go through uh, all these data sets. They make nice charts like this. So I put this title of this chart, Lufthansa is back. This is an actual quote from the CEO. You'll note that the cash flow that they had, uh, you'll see, you know, basically Lufthansa being the German airline. Uh, during the pandemic, you see what happened to their cash flow, and then you saw what happened as it recovered. This is the highest cash flow reading the company's had in its history. The business is like hitting on 16 cylinders or, or ordering all these planes. Why am I talking about Lufthansa? Well, it's just another data point, right? Airline is traffic is coming back. It's not even fully back to pre-pandemic levels around the world, guys. And so what I'm trying to say is this is positive for energy. It keeps slowly but surely inching back, and it takes time. OK, it takes time for people to get back on planes, for the governments to fully reopen, to get all these routes back uh, going again. Again, you still need, I think, a proof of vaccination if you're visiting the U.S. as a foreigner. So little rules like this that are still in place do hold things back to a certain extent. So what I'm trying to show you is, is that we still have positive tailwinds to our energy recovery a story and the underinvestment is still sitting there. You know, if you go and look at most of the oil field services companies, which we have quite a few in the portfolio, the most of the results are out for the previous quarter and of last year, and it's tremendous. The outlooks are very positive also. Uh, why? Is spending back to the levels that had been in the previous years when we had boom times? No, but again, it's recovering over time. The last couple of years, we're seeing more and more spending because it's an extractive industry. And because the, the oil and gas uh, services sector shrunk so much, it went through the probably the worst depression in its history, you don't need the same level of activity to get extraordinary profits. And that's what's happening. And kind of the same thing's happening here with a lot of the airlines. So again, we're not back to where we were before, but we're heading in the right direction, which is positive for energy demand. And here's another chart from that same uh, chart deck. You see, this is the uh, basically millions of 
the bars are the millions of domestic and international pa pa passengers in plane in the U.S. So even in the U.S., we're not even back to pre-pandemic levels, right? We're still 200 million below uh, passengers getting on planes. And you see that previous times to recover, it was the same thing, you know, coming away from the um, coming away from the 9-11 attacks, um, you saw how long it took years to recover, but it did recover. And the same thing's going to happen here. You know, you saw, you know, 2021, 2022, and I expect 2023 to return, you know, continue to return. And at some point in the next couple of years, we will hit the previous highs and exceed them. Um, so again, another tailwind for uh, oil demand uh, as we move higher. The thing that's interesting here is the operating revenues for all airlines operating in the U.S. have exceeded their old, old highs, even though passengers have not. So that's an interesting concept. And that was part of the slide deck. They were saying that airlines are back. They're investable again. I'm not going to get into that. I just thought from the jet fuel demand perspective, we're not even back to pre-pandemic levels. And this, you know, and jet jet traffic demand worldwide is growing, is going to continue to grow again as people become wealthier. So again, um, title of the slide, watch what they do, not what they say. So um, fossil fuel consumption subsidies rose to a record high of over $1 trillion in 2022 amid, amid the global energy crisis. So you see, these are the subsidies for uh, oil is light blue, natural gas. You saw how you see the subsidies really, the, a lot of the growth was in electricity and in um, natural gas and even in oil, but this is a record amount of um, subsidies that governments gave because energy prices, we're in an energy crisis. Uh, we have these little lulls like right now where ga natural gas prices plunge for different reasons. We had a warm winter, um, some other things that happened. Uh, again, we're in a secular, secular meaning multi-year, probably rest of this decade and going into the next decade, energy molecule shortage. It will be punctuated again with cyclical short-term, you know, six to 18 month periods uh, when we'll probably see prices come down based on weather or some other factors. We can expect that, but the long-term, uh, uh, until we uh, acknowledge that we do have a crisis and um, allow uh the free hand of the market to solve the problem, we're going to continue down this road. And so this is what we see. And so why, you know, this is from the International Energy Agency. So why why all these subsidies? Well, you want to stay in power. So remember, don't, you know, when they talk about getting rid of things, I just brought it up earlier in this discussion about the failure of the energy vende in Germany and the fact that they spent $500 billion on renewables in a country that is not set up for, harvesting renewables very well um, basically was being supported under you know behind the scenes undercover with Russian cheap Russian gas and then you take that out of the equation well it has to be replaced and so that's what you know that's how Germany basically made it through this winter or Europe that for that for the most part you know, basically went around and bought up all of the LNG cargoes around the world. That's why you had an energy crisis in Bangladesh and Pakistan. The energy crisis was offloaded onto the emerging markets because Europe being wealthy or relatively wealthier than these emerging markets could go around and outbid for all these cargoes. So nothing was solved except for you had energy inflation and you had to subsidize everything. Do you think that this is investment this is money that should have went into or could have went into new supply. And that's ultimately what's going to have to happen. You're going to have to have investment in new supply to solve these problems because demand's not going away. Now, I know that countries in the West are trying to forcibly constrain their populations into 15-minute cities, stop eating meat, get rid of farmers, all this. stuff. So we'll see if that works or not. But the demand in the emerging markets is insatiable. It will easily pick up the slack for anything that people in the West do, because you, you're, you're talking about you know 400 million people in Europe, 330 million people in the U.S., seven million, 700 million people. So what about the other you know seven billion people 
Uh, what about Africa? What about China, India? You, you see where I'm going with this? And so to stay in power, you know, because that's what it's all about, staying in power, not really solving any problems, just giving lip service to problems. And then when the problem comes up, throw money at it. That's what politicians do. So again, why am I showing you this? Because this is the opportunity. The problem has not been solved. Uh, we had a warm winter, relatively warm winter historically. That just pushed the problem out to next year. So we'll see. We'll see what happens. So Mark Mills, a uh, guy that talks a lot, works at, uh, or is a guy that does a lot of writing for the Manhattan Institute, among other things, uh, really smart guy. He gave this uh, presentation, um, I think it was in Norway, but he, again, um, basically the energy transition delusion, escapable mental rea realities. So this is a YouTube video. It's about 40 minutes, 45 minutes. I'm going to put a link to it. We're right back to the same discussion of why heads we win, tails we win more. You know, hydrocarbon demand is not going away. So heads we win there because we've underinvested and that creates an opportunity. And the current zeitgeist, at least in the West and the OECD countries, is to have this so-called energy transition, which they're trying to force instead of let the market do. Uh, and, you know, the argument that's made in this slide or in this presentation is, it doesn't matter what you want to do. It matters what's possible. And the minerals, again, don't necessarily, the, the, the physical realities are going to constrain this energy transition. And that creates opportunity because the political class, at least in the West, is going to continue to push this government-backed, not well-thought-out energy transition, which the, the minerals uh, don't exist in the quantities that they think they do or are, go are going to be needed. And so tails, we win more because they're going to try to do it anyways. And that's going to force the price up of that. That's in a nutshell. So I, this is a really smart guy. I really enjoy listening to him. I've had the opportunity to kind of talk to him a little bit uh, before and uh, really encourage you to uh, uh, listen to, to uh, this particular video. And if you get a chance to go to the Manhattan Institute, look up his uh, writings I think you'll find them to be uh, pretty spot on. You know, the problem is, is that you get a lot of wags or left-wing people or people that are wedded to or have bought in fully into the energy transition or global warming or whatever. And so they'll they they'll attack a guy like Mark Mills and say, well, he he's writing or working for the Manhattan Institute. That's a that's a right-wing, that's a conservative type outlet. <clears throat> We're not really going to get anywhere as a society unless we kind of drop that kind of thinking. The argument, does the argument that is being made, does the proposition that's being made by anybody that's putting themselves out there, does it stand on its own merits, notwithstanding the fact of the person's personal political views, economic views, whatever, do, does this argument stand on its own merit? Refute the argument. And so if you're not going to do that, um, then I, I'm not really interested in having the discussion with people. Um, of course, everybody has biases. Part of the issue that you really, again, this is kind of like another lesson, if you will. Again, we've talked about this many times. Even myself, I'm biased. Everybody's biased. Munger talks about fighting against these biases. It's an ongoing battle. Everybody has their own views that are shaped by their life experiences or belief systems, whatever. But we're trying to make money here. And investing is about compounding capital. Okay, successfully, long term, consistently. And if we're going to, you know, it might be a great idea that we provide public housing for people, but do you want to invest your money into the next new housing project in the city of Chicago? I wouldn't, based on the previous history. And if you look at like even like these renewable projects, they simply don't return the same amount. The, the returns are not as high as investing in oil and gas projects. And that's why you see. You know, a year, two years ago, most of the major oil companies, at least in Europe, were saying they were going to do these energy transitions. They're going to go away from oil and gas, blah, 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 blah. Well, they're slowly but surely dropping all that now because there's no, you can't make a return. The returns are not there, especially in a, in a, in a, in a situation where interest rates now have basically raised the hurdle rate for projects. Um, it's just not going to cut it. So, uh, Again, 
got off track a little bit here, but I think this is a, you know, a worth your worth 45 minutes of your time. Finally, I wanted to talk about Uzbekistan, a couple of reasons why uh, most people don't care about it. I have this, I'm looking more and more at this crescent of fertile, new fertile crescent, Turkey, through the Caucasus, through Central Asia, Iran, going back up towards, you know, uh, China, the new Belt and Road, the old Silk Road, whatever, what have you. And I think it's going to be a place of tremendous wealth creation over the next coming decades. Um, and I think it's totally off most people's radar screen. But one of the things I want, that's one of the reasons why I'm pretty stoked on Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, Turkey, these kind of places, Iran, um, these places are going to benefit tremendously uh, to what I think is going to this realignment of this into this multipolar world. But one of the things I wanted to uh, put out here was like Uzbekistan makes final preps to import Russian gas. Uh, you know, Uzbekistan uh, is a very, it's growing very rapidly. Uh, it's tremendous changes are happening there, which I've highlighted in the past. I, I'm invested a pretty, pretty decent amount of money in there. I think longer term, it's going to work out well. But again, I mean, they had a severe energy crisis this winter where they had blackouts and it really ticked off a large part of the population. And the country's endowed with a lot of um, natural resources, but um, their ability to develop them in a timely manner is kind of lagged. Uh, at one point, they were actually exporting gas, I think, to China. But anyways, long story short, you know, they've now made preparations to hook up to the Russian gas system, as is Kazakhstan to a certain extent in eastern Kazakhstan, because you don't have a choice. Again, it's about energy security. And again, this multipolar world, you know, Uzbekistan and Kazakhstan and these other countries used to be Soviet uh, republics. They broke away uh, or they had their independence. And, you know, they want to they want to do that. They want to be, you know, they don't want to be wedded to Russia because, the, you know, but in, in the end, reality is reality. You know, you have a situation where you need the gas. The gas is available. Uh, your population is not going to sit through another winter where they had no heat and electricity for periods of time. And then you need that gas for to keep the economic growth going. OK, again, a population, once they attain a certain level of wealth and comfort, is not going to be going backwards. You will not stay in power long term if that's if you're mismanaging expectations or the reality that has been set by precedent. And so basically it says here, Uzbekistan's state-owned natural gas company is still working on adjusting pipeline infrastructure to enable it to import fuel from Russia, a measure it is pursuing to help avoid a repeat of the chronic shortages endured over the winter. In late November, Russian President Putin reportedly spoke during a meeting in Moscow with Kazakhstan's president about the notion of setting up a, quote, trilateral, trilateral gas union that would also include Uzbekistan. Kazakhstan is likewise poised to start sourcing some of its gas needs from Russia. Like Uzbekistan, it too has had to forego China-bound exports. And so this is what I'm talking about, the multipolar world. If Europe wants to cut itself off from the rest of Eurasia, Eurasia continues to move. So you have several ideas here I wanted to talk about. So Uzbekistan, again, you know, needs, the, needs fuel, needs energy security. You're going to go to where you're going to go to where it's at. So if, am I saying this is going to completely uh, take up the slack for European exports by Russia? No, but it's a trend. It's a view. Russia is not out of options, okay? Um, and the Central Asian republics are going to be... So if you're Tony Blinken and you fly into Tashkent, what are you supposed to say to the leadership in Uzbekistan? Don't hook up to the natural gas, Russian gas pipelines, and then you say, well, you know, we're going to have a revolution here if we go through another winter and, and have to turn the heat off in Tashkent. So what's your solution? Well, we don't have a solution, but just don't do that. I mean, that's not going to work. So, uh, again, watch what politicians and policymakers do, not what they say all the time. Uh, of course, it's a it's a it's a it's a balancing act, right, of these countries. They want to show their populations that they're not you know, under the thumb of Russia. But then again, you're right on the border there. You can't get away from it. You know, we have a relationship with Mexico, whether we like it or not. 
because it's on our border. Okay, we have a relationship with Central American countries, whether we like it or not. Okay, um, these people are in our sphere of influence, and so it's the same thing here. So again, I, I'm I'm always looking in this whole fertile crescent, if you will, this new Silk Road, whatever. I think people are sleeping on it. I don't think I think it's going to have tremendous opportunity. These are places where the populations, the demographics are very positive. The people are very industrious. There's a lot of natural resources there. Uh, there's problems, of course. Nothing's, uh, you know, completely, you know, skittles and unicorns. But there's tremendous opportunity, I think, in this whole area from Turkey through Caucasus into, like I said, Central Asia and beyond. And I think that, uh, you know, looking at that and seeing how you can take advantage of it could be to your, uh, could be to your profit. Okay, that's it for this week, I believe. Yes, so appreciate the support. Uh, thanks again, guys. Channel continues to grow. Um, again, things are kind of boring right now in the markets. There's not much to do. I don't think that you know you should be in a big hurry to put new money to work. Uh, there are some special situations in oil and gas services that I think are still good. Uh, we follow those in the newsletter. We have a lot of companies. I'd probably say a half dozen companies in oil field services, both offshore and onshore that uh, I think uh, have positive futures over the next couple of years. So uh, again, though, the market in general here in the US, again, why take any risk when you can basically get a 5% return risk-free from uh, buying T-bills? All right, guys, that's it for this week. We'll talk to you next week. Thank you.